0: Always deeply researched and beautifully written, the work of Ross King has vividly brought to life the worlds of Leonardo, Machiavelli, Michelangelo, and Brunelleschi, giving his readers historical accounts of an era fraught with intellectual, religious, and political turmoil. In the bookseller of florence he sets his sights on the manuscript hunters scribes scholars and booksellers of the time who helped rediscover and disseminate ancient knowledge that led to the imagining of a new and enlightened world we're introduced to vespasiano da Bisticci, called the king of the world's booksellers and if i thought i had it difficult as an independent bookseller today europe's most prolific merchant of knowledge faced a disruption like no other, the advent of the printing press, forever changing the ways knowledge spread. And just like all of Ross King's histories, the bookseller of Florence is gripping and altogether delightful. Ross King, thank you for being on The Literary Life. My pleasure. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I think ever since Brunelleschi's Dome, you have been a guest at Books and Books and in Miami almost for each and every book, I believe. That's right. Yes. Uh, great memories of uh,
1: South Florida and Books and blo- Books. I One of the first times I ever went there, you had, uh, it was evening uh, and I think it was the day before I was speaking. And so I was just taken there to, I think, to meet you and, and to see the shop. And you had jazz playing uh, outdoors uh, and there were people both browsing books, buying books, but also, um, you know, watching the music. And it was uh, 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 just a, a wonderful experience. And, you know, this we're going back into 20 years and I still remember vividly that experience of going there and seeing just the way a bookstore can be such a hub for uh, bringing things together culturally, uh, books and music and people and, and all of those things. So. Um, Yes, uh, very close to my heart, books and books.
0: Well, thank you, Ross. How has this year been for you and uh, contemplating the publication of a book?
1: Well, it's one of those things uh, where you start uh, start to wonder if the world needs your book, um, because everyone is concerned about so many other things that, you know, understandably, justifiably, um, and you... Uh, and so you, you think the publication of a new book is maybe not the biggest priority for people. But on the other hand, what people have wanted in lockdown and in the midst of this crisis is the kind of reassurance that comes from immersing themselves in something cultural uh, that you both need to be engaged with what's happening and following the news. But you also need to disengage and recharge And that's why I think a lot of people have turned to the arts and literature and and music in the way that they didn't when when they were traveling and when they were being stimulated in a maybe much more immediate in situ way. Uh, Whereas here these days where, you know, we've been spending so much time at home and many people spending time on their own uh, that I think the lifeline for many people has been listening to lectures online, buying books, listening to music, and getting their cultural entertainment and their buzz in that particular way. So I guess the way I justify myself is that I am a content producer and what I'm trying to do, um, as always, is entertain and enlighten people. Uh, And maybe that is as important now as it ever has been in the past, given the circumstances in which we find ourselves.
0: Well, this is a perfect segue into the bookseller of Florence, because just as we've had a backdrop of horrific uh, upheaval, um, 15th century uh, Florence was not very much different. You had incredible political and religious upheaval in the Florence that you write about. And um, so I pose to you this question, you know, what made, with that given that background, uh, what made Florence at that time so conducive to being a place where books were considered so essential? Well, that's one of the maybe
1: encouraging things uh, about studying history is you realize that you know, we uh, we're, we talk about this being unprecedented, the situation we're in, and it certainly is. And it's the world's biggest challenge since uh, 1939 uh, and uh, the Second World War. And so none of us meaningfully, no one alive today is really meaningfully engaged with this sort of problem that we're having. However, uh, lots of times in the past, people have lived through times you know as bad as or much worse than we're experienced today and survived and good things ultimately came out of it and so i think one of the things that history tells you is keep going uh, that things yes things might be bad but they won't always be bad and w- within things uh, being terrible uh, you, you can come out of the wreckage and in many ways that's what 15th century florence was because anyone alive in the first couple of decades in the 1400s in Florence had come out of the wreckage of the 1300s, which um, one of my favorite books is Barbara Tuchman's A Distant Mirror, which must be 40 years old at this point, that has the great subtitle, The Turbulent, 15, sorry, turbulent 14th Century. And it was turbulent because of the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death, all of that. And if you survived all of that by the 1400s, what you faced was the question of how can we make our society better? The church has failed us, our political leaders have failed us, our governments have failed us, our culture has failed us, nothing is working. And so what happened in Florence in the first decades of the 1400s is a group of scholars said, we need to solve the situation that we're living through and therefore, let's look at the past, let's look at the way things were done successfully in ancient Rome, which they thought was the most successful society on earth, the most successful society there had ever been. Um, and so they tried to replicate that. And that's, Then I think what makes Florence such a great city is they try to recapture in uh, their scholarship, in their leadership, and uh, uh, in, uh, um, in their education, in their speech making, in their political assemblies, the grandeur that was ancient Rome. And they also then, and this maybe is the key point that I would say about what made Florence great, the great place to sell books in the 1400s, is it had the highest literacy rate in Europe. They loved books in Florence and read uh, read more books than anyone else. The f- literacy, adult male literacy rate in the vernacular, so not in Latin, but in the Italian language, the Florentine tongue was probably 75% uh, compared with, um, in Paris, where you also had quite an educated population, maybe 25%. And so Florence, uh, for whatever reason, I think it's still debated why it was that literacy was so high there, um, for whatever reason, they were a very literate society and literate societies become successful societies. And so I think that's one of the lessons that Florence and Vespasiano da Bisticci, the bookseller of Florence, teaches us today.
0: And and you just mentioned him. And in this environment uh, emerges this young 11-year-old bookseller, Vespasiano, Pasiano. Um, who goes to work on the street of booksellers. So talk a little bit, first of all, about the street of booksellers, and then also talk about how Vespasiano found his way to the preeminent bookstore of the time.
1: Uh, Many many of your listeners have probably walked along the street of booksellers recently without knowing they were doing so, because today it's known as the the Via del Proconsolo. And it's one of the main north-south arteries in Florence that goes past one of the great tourist destinations in Florence, which is the Bargello Museum, the great sculpture museum, which has a Donatello floor and a a Michelangelo floor. And so that little stretch, a a couple of blocks long, a very narrow street in the 1400s was the the Via dei Librai, the street of booksellers. Um, And that's where you would go to buy paper, parchment, ink, goose quills, and books, both new and used. Um, and after 1434, um, you could go into one of them and encounter uh, this fellow who began work, as you say, Mitchell, at the age of 11. Um, when we idealize Florence, I guess one of the things we must bear in mind is that they did use what we would today call child labor. Um, but Vespasiano was a, uh, his father died when he was only a few years old, um, and he was forced ultimately at a young age to drop out of school and go and earn his crust and help his family. His mother was pregnant with her sixth child when her husband died. So there were these six little kids and as soon as Vespasiano came of working age, 11, uh, he went off to work in the the bookstore. And it's not known why he ended up there. Um, He never himself says in, in any of his writings, Uh, So we don't know whether his schoolmaster recognized that this boy is incredibly bright, as he obviously was, and loves books, and therefore I'll get him a place with a bookseller, or whether Vespasiano, off his own back because he loved books, said, I want to work for a bookseller, or whether it was just some random occurrence that the bookseller had a sign in his window, help wanted, and Vespasiano's mother saw it and shoved the 11-year-old through the door and said, you start work here. We just don't know how this happened. But the good thing is that it did happen uh, because as so often in Florence, you get the right person in the right place at the right time to take advantage of a situation, which in this case is selling books, selling manuscripts uh, to this literate population of Florence and beginning to disseminate the wisdom uh, the wisdom of the world to, um, first of all, Florence, but then beyond the borders of Florence um, into, you know, across the Italian peninsula and north of the Alps, across the English Channel to England, uh, because he did ultimately become um, the bookseller, not just of Florence in some ways, but the, um, as he was called, the king, he was the king of the world's booksellers. He was the biggest merchant of knowledge um, in in the 15th century before the printing press, because of his, the reach of his uh, and the magnitude of his productions, he produced thousands and thousands of manuscripts that he then sold to scholars, but also uh, to the crowned heads of Europe um, and his manuscripts made their way into many prestigious collections.
0: You're you're a a devotee of bookstores around the world, and I know your love for bookstores, and you were kind enough to, you know, even acknowledge a number of bookstores that have been meaningful to you. Describe for our listeners what a bookstore was like in Florence at that time. It's very different than what we think of a bookstore today. Vespasiano's bookshop was
1: typical. It was unique in many ways but it was also typical of what a bookshop was like and they're different i would say they're different from bookshops today because on the one hand you did have the shelves or cupboards of books and manuscripts that you could buy and so you had that element of them which is common to them today but they were also workshops Uh, they were artisanal and so maybe one of the first things you would hear as you walked into Vespasiano's bookshop uh, would be hammers barking saws, coughing, uh, maybe the cursing of someone who has pricked his thumb with a needle as he was stitching a book together, because books were actually manufactured on site or put together on site after they were put to get after the, the labor for them was outsourced to little cottage industries around Florence, such as the scribes and illuminators who wrote them. So you would go into the bookshop and you would have this background, maybe in another room, of all of this industry going on, like in so many other workshops in, in Florence, as in the slipper maker, who was just down the street from Vespasiano Shop, or a shoemaker, or someone like that, or a draper. And yet you then also had the intellectual content of the finished product, its product itself going on display. So in many ways, it was a typical workshop. You had the back room where the work was done, and then front of office, front of house, where the wares were put on display. And it's also the case that Vespasiano would have little displays, um, maybe window displays. We don't know anything about that, but he certainly had an awning outside his shop where he would put manuscripts. And so um, he would have a sort of curbside display in the way that booksellers or anyone selling products today in a shop um, maybe has out on the sidewalk um, in front of whatever kind of shop they have today.
0: The only thing missing was a chess set and a coffee shop.
1: Exactly. Yes. Uh, Well, it, you probably could get food there. There is um, it does appear there is one um, statement where someone refers to it as being like uh, um, a place where you could get lunch or something like that. I was never able to find any kind of record beyond that, that indicated that he did have a coffee shop and you could You know, get your cards stamped, uh, your loyalty cards stamped as you bought a book and then (laughs) said Well, one of the things that you could do in his bookshop uh, was take a book off the shelf and sit down with it and read a good part of it because there are descriptive eyewitness descriptions of uh, people doing this in his shop. And in some ways, it was like a library as well or a a reading room. Um, And it was also a debating society because. It was the because Vespasiano was so well connected to so many eminent people because of the fact that he made libraries for them. Your first, if you were a, a kind of intellectual luminary or a bishop or someone like that coming to Florence for the first time, your first port of call was often Vespasiano's shop because of the fact that he was the one who could make introductions to you to all the important people in Florence. But you could also then learn the gossip. what was happening in Florence, learn the political news, uh, hear what was going on, or engage in the many intellectual debates that they had uh, within the workshop. So it's sort of a university, a debating room, a library, a bookshop, and the workshop all rolled into one. So it's a really a, a very kind of Special space, so I guess the jazz band was lacking, uh, but you could probably get a glass of wine there or some, something like that. but
0: you, you know, you paint that picture so beautifully as as the bookshop as and I mean even then, I mean then it was a it was a community center, as you say, uh, particularly because of the intellectual nature of the books and the intellectual nature of of um, of what Florence was attempting to do. Talk a little bit about the kinds of clients that Vesp- uh, uh, Vespasiano had. Who were the clients of Ves- Vespasiano at that point? They were the,
1: at the upper end you had, I guess what we'd call the 1%. He had the wealthiest people, the most powerful people in Italy. So the crowned heads of Europe. Um, he all, but he also had the laurelled heads of Europe, all the great intellects who maybe didn't have so much money but did have the intellectual firepower. Um, And so, for example, one of his best clients and incidentally a very good friend of his was Cosimo de' Medici, uh, the the Florentine banker come ruler of Florence, the man who effectively ruled Florence between 1434 and 1464 and was a great patron of artists such as Donatello um, at that time. Vespasiano became very good friends with him and would find books for him and manuscripts for him. Likewise, he did for his two sons um, and uh, including uh, Piero, who was the father of Lorenzo, Lorenzo the Magnificent, um, who he also worked for. So he worked for three generations of the Medici family, but he also worked for three generations of the kings of Naples um, and uh, therefore uh, you know, exported learning south of Florence to the kingdom of Naples. And his books became part of the royal collection, the royal library in Naples. Um, and uh, he became especially good friends with the Duke of Calabria, who was the son of uh, King Ferdinand, who ultimately then became King Alfonso much later in the uh, the 1490s. And so he's very well connected in terms of having these very powerful influential clients uh, who were of a, I mean, one of the interesting things for me in writing the book was being able to delve into the histories of these guys because they were kind of, they conform to a typical Renaissance type, which is someone who is extremely refined and literate. Um, I mean, maybe the best example is Federico de Montefeltro, the Duke of Urbino, extremely refined, um, in terms of, I mean, Federigo had five people at his court in Urbino whose sole job was to read books to him as he carried out various tr- business transactions or as he he was a great soldier. And so as he was on campaign, as he was riding his horse, preparing to go into battle, someone would be reading to him inspiring passages from ancient Roman history. Um, and so Federigo was very literate, very interested in history, very cultured, he was also religious uh, you know as far as we can tell sincerely religious and yet he was also incredibly bloodthirsty and murderous yeah. and all of Vespasiano's clients conform to that type you know very refined and yet refined intellectually and yet also they have this streak of murderous savagery in them and the Neapolitan clients he had were perfect examples of that as well I mean they were horrific characters in many ways and yet they loved books and wanted to know the best that had been thought and said um, over the previous 2000 years and put it in their collections and then behave um, in very
0: different ways. Before um, Vespasiano uh, and before the period that you're writing about, um, much of what we think of as classical literature was somewhat lost, right? or it had to be rediscovered. Absolutely,
1: absolutely.
0: What Vespasiano specialized in
1: was ancient literature, particularly the literature of ancient Rome. Um, And so you would go to him for the writings of Cicero. Um, If you wanted Cicero on rhetoric, you would go to Vespasiano and he would sell you a copy, he would manufacture one for you. And so it was that, this was all part of the project that Vespasiano and his learned friends in Florence were determined to carry out to make the world a better place. They thought if we study our Cicero and our Quintilian and our Aristotle, we'll become not just wiser people, but better people, better in terms of more virtuous, but better also in terms of how we're able to rule over our subjects or conduct ourselves politically or conduct ourselves Martially will become better at warfare if we pay attention to the lessons of ancient rome And so what vespasiano was doing is accumulating All of this knowledge for these particular clients and you're absolutely right that much much of this That he was putting out there was only recently rediscovered and if it hadn't been rediscovered I mean it had disappeared for in some cases, five centuries, in some cases, a thousand years, uh, because these works were simply lost to the West uh, for various reasons, because the texts themselves disappeared and people had no access to them and couldn't find them. And so all of this, there was a kind of project to recover this ancient knowledge so we can learn from it. And once it was recovered by these manuscript hunters, people such as Poggio Bracciolini, Vespasiano was the one who, uh, I guess, promulgated it, who spread it, who disseminated it by putting it in manuscript form and sending it out to his various clients all all over Europe um, so that it could be read because it's no good discovering quintillions on the education of an orator unless you make it possible for lots of people to read it. And that's what Vespasiano, that's where Vespasiano felt. He came into this project of educating people um, and trying to turn the world into a better place because he was the, the, the producer, the content producer uh, back in the, the 15th century.
0: Well, he wore so many hats. I mean, he was a bookseller, he was a publisher, he was a book designer, uh, he was a printer in, in essence. When you say that, I, I mean, I'm just interested as a bookseller. When you say that he would he would manufacture a copy for you, uh, what did that exactly mean? He'd have a he'd have a stable of scribes that he would then go to and have them sort of um, he would choose the paper or the parchment and you know how how did this actually work you know in the practical sense?
1: Absolutely, I mean it's a fascinating process. Today we take for granted that we just we go into the bookshop and the book is either on the shelf for us over or if it's not we order it and it's going to come fresh from the publisher's warehouse or fresh from the publisher, um, and it's going to be identical, hopefully, to every other copy of that book. What would happen pre-printing press, which only k- develops in the second half of the 1400s, is that, say I want a copy of Pliny the Elder's Natural History, probably one of the most famous works from the ancient world, this great work on science and natural history about animals and plants and countries and people written by Pliny the Elder, who is the man who died with the explosion of Vesuvius in 79 AD. If you wanted a copy for that, uh, of that, what you would do would be to approach Vespasiano. And I choose Pliny because of the fact that someone who wanted a copy of Pliny in the 1440s said Vespasiano is the best guide for getting the best copy of his work. And So what you would do would be to approach him and say I want Pliny the Elder's Natural History. Vespasiano's first step then would be to get, find a copy of it, find the exemplar from which he was going to make a copy. And he would ideally find three or four manuscript versions of it, some of them maybe hundreds of years old, some of them maybe only done a year, copied out a year earlier. But those ones from a year earlier may have errors in them, in fact they certainly would have had errors in them. And so what Vespasiano would do and what he became renowned for was correcting them and making them the best possible version of that book. Um, because, of course, you're, we're dealing with manuscripts which were written on papyrus in, say, 75 AD. And now, f- almost 1500 years later, is the, the manuscripts had passed through the hands of maybe dozens and dozens of scribes and different manuscripts, scribes copying scribes copying their errors and then introducing ones of their own. So you have all sorts of erroneous texts circulating. Vespasiano would get as many erroneous texts as possible, look at them and really collate them, decide what is the best reading of each passage, and then produce the manuscript for you. And he would produce it, as you say, to your specifications he would say do you want parchment and you would say yes and he would say okay it's going to be this much it's going to be more expensive if it's parchment because that of course is animal skin um, not not paper and it comes with a higher cost but the beauty of the animal skin is it can then be decorated and he would then say to you do you want it decorated i can have it illuminated so you can have beautiful capital letters that are painted with gold leaf or silver leaf on i can have illustrations throughout it if you want because i've got in my back room which he did have an illuminator who would do the work for you or if he was busy he had other people in florence he could get to do it once everything was decided um, once he had the exemplar he would then give the exemplar to his scribe and the scribe um, what would then copy it out over the course of the next couple of weeks or months Uh, and the scribes are very interesting characters we probably think of scribes as monks or friars uh, which in the middle ages really up until maybe the 1300s they were Uh, but by Vespasiano's time most of them were notaries or teachers people who knew latin and who had good handwriting those are the really the two major requirements for the job And Vespasiano would then give the manuscript to this notary who probably worked out of his office or his home, and he would copy it out. Vespasiano would then look at it to make sure that everything, that there weren't any extra er errors, there weren't errors or things like that in it. And only then would you get it. And if it was a big work like St. Augustine's City of God, it might cost you 70 ducats or 70 florins, Duckers and Florence were roughly run the roughly the same price at that time, but they um, to give you a uh, an indication of the value of that book, seventy florins was what a worker could expect to earn in Florence. Say a very good bricklayer or a very good stonemason, or in Vespasiano's case, a very good bookseller, because his salary, what he earned each year, I calculated to around 70, 70 florins and so in many cases he produced books that he could not have afforded, you know, could not afford to buy because of the fact that it would have cost him his year's salary in order to purchase it back. Incidentally, Michel, one of the sad things about the book is that Vespasiano never became rich and I think it's a, a sad lesson that that, that uh, people, as Vespasiano himself said, he said, people who are um, rich in knowledge are often poor in material things <laughs> And he often lamented about how he was not doing as well financially as people in other professions. So uh, the, the plight of authors and booksellers goes back five it goes way back. at least.
0: So I guess he, you know, he truly did experience true bookselling as we all know it today. Uh, but that leads me to two questions. So where did the exemplar copies come from? Were there collectors of that? Were they found in churches? Where were these copies found? Um, Exactly those two places. For the
1: most part, Vespasiano was lucky in some ways because there was a very good um, building across, a very good source of books across the street from him, which was a Benedictine Abbey, which still stands today. It's the Badia. It's directly across from the Bargello Museum. And if you look at a cityscape of Florence, you see these twin towers the Tower of the Bargello and the Tower of the Badia. And it had the collection of a man named Corbinelli uh, who died around the time that Vespasiano was born. And he willed his collection, uh, which was one of the best collections in Europe to the uh, Badia. And so Vespasiano would simply cross the street and go and see what Corbinelli, who was an extremely learned uh, scholar, Uh, what his collection had. And so Vespasiano was able to tap that collection. Also, he had access to the best collection in best private collection in Europe at that time, uh, which was that of a man named Niccolò Niccoli, um, who died, Vespasiano got to know him when Vespasiano was very young. Niccoli was the uh, wealthy man who didn't do a lot apart from collect books and he put together the biggest collection in Europe, um, at which as astoundingly, and when I say that, you probably think you know tens of, <clears throat> tens of thousands of copies. In fact, he had um, eight or 900 books. That was the extent of the largest collection of books um, in Europe, because books are a scarcity. They're a scarce commodity at this time. Um, and I, I did look up at one point the average library of a primary school in the United Kingdom and they are supposed to have 1300 books. So every primary school in England has more books today than the largest, the greatest book collector of, of the early 1400s had um, in Niccolo Niccoli's collection. So Vespasiano would go there to get books and he also had access to various other private collections such as the um, One of Cosimo de' Medici, for example, Um, and there was one in Luca, uh, a man in Luca also had a collection that he had access to. Uh, So but that was a difficult thing. He could never find a lot of copies because there just were not a lot of copies of books. Um, You know, best he could maybe only find two or three copies of, say, the works of Pliny the Elder. um, And if he wanted to make a new copy of it. So it was very difficult. We're used to having free access to knowledge, um, or at least our access to knowledge. Knowledge is available to us in many forms very quickly, but it was not like that in 15th century Europe. Have
0: very many or any of Vespasiano's books survived to, till today? Have you been able to, to see any of them and where are they? Yes, absolutely.
1: Uh, thankfully,
0: yes, they,
1: some of them do exist. Tragically, um, a, a lot of them have been lost uh, because he supplied uh, libraries for uh, 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 some princes whose libraries then burned down. Uh, one of the greatest ones was in Pizarro. Um, and it, he probably did 500 manuscripts for this man named Alessandro Sforza and his son and uh, the library then burned down about 50 years after Vespasiano's death, and every single one of those was lost. Likewise, he did a bunch that ended up in Hungary, hundreds of them, and they went up in flames as well in the the, the 1500s. However, they do still exist, and uh, some of them are very close to where I am. Uh, They're in the center of Oxford in Balliol College, because um, one of the graduates of Balliol College in the early 1400s. A man named William Gray went to England and, or, sorry, went to Italy as an ambassador um, and ultimately got to Vespasiano and put together a collection of books, which he then left uh, to his old, old college, Balliol. That's wonderful. And, uh, and And they're still there. And so you can see the parchment and the illumination and also the beautiful, beautiful and very legible, um, even today, handwriting that Vespasiano's scribes used. He had some 40 scribes, maybe 50 scribes that he could tap to do work for him, Um, people who had very beautiful, clear, fluent handwriting. And so uh, these uh, books still, you know, if you know Latin um, and you just know one or two tricks like the all the S's look like F's, you can, you can read them today very easily.
0: So, so, book selling and publishing today has suffered from so many disruptors. I mean, just in my 40 year career, we've had everything from the discounters to the superstores to ebooks to online book selling. Um, and the death of the book has been talked about forever over these 40 years. Uh, and it's, it's alive and well. Vespasiano probably had one of the greatest, suffered through one of the greatest disruptions in the history of books and, and printing and publishing. So talk about what the coming of the printing press meant for him and what happened to him ultimately. Sure.
1: It Yes, uh, the printing press was perfected by 1454, which is the uh, the date at which we know that the Gutenberg Bible, the 42-line Bible, was completed and put on sale at the Frankfurt Fair. Um, However, Vespasiano had a cushion of maybe two decades before he really had to worry about it, because the printing press made very slow inroads into print culture, into intellectual culture, um, in in the decades after uh, the invention, because Gutenberg may have been a brilliant Printer and engineer, but he was not a great publisher. He ultimately really failed at that um, enterprise, and he also, for obvious commercial reasons, wanted to keep the printing press a secret. Um, and therefore, there weren't a lot of printers for the first ten years, at least, of uh, the uh, after the Gutenberg Bible. And all the only printers that there were were ones who had worked with Gutenberg himself. So we're talking about just a handful. And the uh, printing press didn't leave the banks of the Rhine in any meaningful way until the latter half of the 1460s when two of Gutenberg's assistants, um, uh, two men named uh, uh, Schweinheim and Panartz, came south of the Alps and set up first of all, a few miles outside of Rome. And then by uh, by, uh, 1466 in Rome itself, And they began printing at that point. And gradually then over the next 10 years, say between 1466 and 1476, German printers began arriving in Italy, realizing that the Italians were the people of the printed book or the Italians were the the ones who were the most literate. If the Germans had the technology, the Germans knew how to make the ink that would take uh, to parchment or paper from the printing press. And if the Germans knew how to cast the metal letters and how to run the press and how to make all of that work, the Italians were the market for it. And so that's why for the first 20 years of the printing press, virtually all of the printers are German. And many of these German printers turn up in Italy, in Venice, in Rome, in Naples, and ultimately then in Florence. So, uh, but Vespasiano then continues his way merrily for The next 20 years after the creation of the printing press because the printed book has not made inroads into his business really until the late 1470s and that really for him was the tipping point the point at which it really was not possible for him to uh, have the same kind of clients that he had um, and um, and make his business work as i said he was always working on very narrow margins and in difficult financial situation much of the time and the printing press really um, in some ways killed him off as a businessman and entrepreneur and made him go into another profession which ultimately was going to be writing and he became a a writer instead but maybe there's a lesson in Vespasiano's story which is is that we must if we're going to survive we need to embrace new technology or engage with it in some way, because Vespasiano did not. He was adamant that he had a better product, which in many ways he did, and he said that the printing, a, a printed book would be a shame to be in the company of the books that I create. And maybe people who were very aesthetic or very snobbish perhaps like Vespasiano believed that and certainly some of his clients did and they only wanted handwritten books not printed ones however for the population in general the printed books served their needs because of the fact that it was 20% cheaper than Vespasiano's deluxe items.
0: Much of what we talked about so far you know, is in the, you know, basically it's a a male pursuit. How did women readers, you know, find their way into this world? And did they? And were there some notable women uh, who were booksellers or scribes or uh, at all involved in what we were, you know, what we're talking about?
1: Absolutely. Uh, There were, in fact, women uh, were scribes and illuminators going back, early into the Middle Ages, because if you were a nun in a refectory, or sorry, a nun in a convent, um, you, you would be involved in the production of the liturgical books for your convent. And so uh, there were many uh, women who were both scribes, who in other words, wrote out the text for the, the hymn book or the, um, uh, the whatever, the antiphonary, let's say. Um, and also did the illustrations in it. So, did the calligraphy as well as the gold leaf and the illustrations. So, there's a great tradition of this. And so, when you talk about scribes in the Middle Ages, you can't just use the male pronoun and say he, you have to say he or she because of the fact that so many women did this. And a really interesting thing that I was able to work on was specifically this question of women as book producers in the 15th century because the most successful print shop in, uh, and printing press in Florence uh, in, uh, in the early years of printing was run by women, or at least operated by women, because it was in a Dominican uh, convent in Florence, the convent of San Jacopo de Ripoli. Um, the, obviously, because of the fact that these, uh, as Dominicans, the nuns were cloistered, they couldn't go out into society, and so they couldn't go out and buy the paper and make the deals, so the, a man within the convent, the procurator, had to do that for them, but they then manned the printing press, and um, and I'm using the wrong ver- verb there obviously, they, they womaned the, the printing press, they worked on it, they took up the, the uh, composing sticks um, and worked on um, a lot of books, including one of the most remarkable books printed in the 15th century which was the Latin translation of the complete works of Plato, um,
0: as well as all sorts of other books as well. Uh, the Bookseller of Florence is such a, 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 an important and needed uh, piece of scholarship, and I can't thank you enough. And I, I wonder if maybe you'd read a little bit from it, if you would. Sure, of course, I'd be happy to. Um, I'm going to read a
1: short passage, which uh, just sort of introduces the concept of creating a manuscript out of parchment. The word manuscript comes from the Latin manuscriptus, written by hand. But any manuscript was the product of much more work than simply the writing of a single hand. It was a months or even years long multi-step process calling for the expertise of a series of tradesmen and specialist craftsmen, from parchment makers to scribes, miniaturists, gold beaters, and even apothecaries, carpenters, and blacksmiths. Vespasiano occasionally produced works on paper, of which, like all cartelai, all booksellers, he carried ready supplies. For the most part, though, his clients expected him to use parchment. Booksellers carried stalks of parchment, which was made from the skin of sheep or goats, and sometimes also from donkeys. The most beautiful and Expensive material on which to write was calfskin, or vellum, the word vellum coming, like the word veal, from vitulus, or vitulus, Latin for calf. The younger the calf, the finer and whiter the skin. The supply of hides for parchment was always dependent on the dietary preferences of the local population. The appetite in Italy for goats, one recipe book offered advice on how to spit roast, boil, or stew them, how to cook their eyes, ears, lungs, and testicles, and how to make pies from their heads, meant that manuscripts in Italy were often made from goatskin. This reliance of the book industry on the palate of the locals is reflected in the lament by a 13th century patriarch of Cyprus that not until after Lent, when people began eating meat again, would he be able to get the hides required for a manuscript of Demosthenes. For hundreds of years, the transmission of knowledge had depended on carnivorous appetites and good animal husbandry. Large volumes with hundreds of pages required the skins of many animals. One goat was often needed for each page of parchment in a large liturgical book, such as an antiphonary, while a bible might take the skins of more than 200 animals, an entire herd of goats or flock of sheep.
0: Ross, thank you for all the marvelous books that you've written over all these years. Particularly, I thank you for the bookseller of Florence.